Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm laughing because I am uh, sitting across from a man who I haven't seen in a long, long time. And it's a very, it's a very odd feeling when you haven't seen somebody for a long time. Um, It's an especially uh, more odd feeling when you haven't seen somebody for a long time. And that's a really, really, really great man. And um, normally the reason why you don't see people for a long time is because they're not a great person. Um, And you try to justify your distance from them by thinking to yourself why they're wrong for your life or why you shouldn't talk to them or why you shouldn't have anything to do with them while you're lying in the fetal position in a dark room in your man cave. But uh, for the purpose of this interview, uh, Mike Royce is somebody I will share with all of you, is one of the most amazing uh, people that that I've ever come in contact with in comedy, and I'm going to tell you why, Uh, which will probably be a six degrees of separation story that I normally start off these podcasts with. And just to share with you uh, before I start, again, I want to thank all of you for um, the support of this uh, show. I I don't know if I verbalize this or not, and I'm going to, um, and maybe it's uh, giving too much information about me as a person or my life or my business, but... 
one of the most amazing things about being a manager is that you can work with an artist and you they have their checklist of things they want to have happen in their their life or you could call it a bucket list or whatever and they'll sit down with you as a manager and they'll go over it and maybe if you're a young comedian maybe you're at the top of the list is you just want to you just want to be a regular at the comedy cellar in Greenwich Village and or maybe one of your things on your list is you want to do late show with David Letterman or the Fallon show now. Maybe you want to get a guest set in on Law and Order, which filmed in New York, or or just anything like that. And if you're a, a, a let's say you are a comedian, uh, if you're of a larger ilk, maybe you want uh, your own series that you star in and you write and create, or maybe you want to do a movie with a significant director like Michael Mann or or somebody of that nature, or Quentin Tarantino. Maybe you want to do an hour special. Maybe you want your own reality series that's like a hybrid kind of thing. Maybe you want to just write a screenplay and sell it, whatever it might be. And, um, you know, that's something as a manager, when you're working with an artist, it's an amazing thing because they give you the tools you give them the blueprint and together you work together to accomplish those goals. And when it happens, whether you're a manager like like myself and you, let's say with somebody's talent, you have them film a character reel for Saturday night live. And in my relationships, I send them off to Marcy Klein and, and Lauren Michaels and, and Lindsay Shookus and that and the team there of of the people that have been there in the past and who are there now the new people and you test for the show and then you get the show it's an amazing thing that happens as your merit manager it's like it's and an artist it's like it's like heroin if i ever did heroin it would be like that kind of thing and i know this is a long-winded way of saying it but it's an amazing feeling. We talked about going back to the man cave and sitting in the fetal position and having reevaluating your life of how you are with a person. But this is the opposite extreme where you, you do that and you're like, wow, I, I did something that helped somebody with their talent and my talent. I was able to help somebody with my skill set and then inspire them in any way possible with their skill set to get that that thing on their list checked off and and launch them up in a certain area and then when you think about it you realize that you're only allowed in that situation to help one person to inspire one person and yes if somebody gets saturday live they get on the show and they get to do their thing and they reach millions and they inspire millions and that's a wonderful thing but just for the sake of the artist for myself i only uh am able to help one person at a time and one of the reasons why i want to do this podcast is i wanted to be in a situation where no matter what profession you were in I could be a conduit with these amazing guests 
to help not just one person, but to help millions of people. And I, you know, when you set out and you do something like all of you in the audience, you, you have a goal that you want to accomplish. You start off at zero, zero and you have nothing. And when we started this podcast, we had nothing myself and you as an audience included, you weren't there. And, and what you hope is that in any kind of content you create or anything you do in the business that America speaks and America or the people tell you what means something to them and what doesn't. And I guess in a long five minute diatribe that I just had there, what I'm trying to say to you all is that I had a goal on my checklist and I didn't have a manager helping me facilitate it. All I had to help me facilitate it was really all I needed, which were extraordinary guests, tremendous producers that helped me. And, and I get to be in a situation where I can help all of you uh, accomplish your goals through osmosis and it's a, it's an amazing feeling and, and getting your emails and your tweets and your Facebook messages and your Federal Express packets that come to me that are not Federal Express packets. They're just delivered to me or it's just it's incredible. And I, I'm, I'm so grateful and thankful to you. And so I'm going to segue here into this uh, thing I want to say. When I was in New York, I came to New York from Boston. I, um, For those of you who don't know my crazy story, I had a life in Boston. I was booking a number of different uh, comedy clubs and venues all across New England. I had a, a great thing going. I had a comedy club there called Play It Again Sam's. I was married and as often happens in our lives, as my grandmother and father used to say, you make plans and God laughs. And, you know, my wife uh, passed away when I was 26. She was 23. And I just really, I just had to get out of there. Even though things were going really well there, I had to get out because there's that weird feeling when you're around people that know what's happened to you. You feel this thing that you, it's like even using the comedy example, a lot of times you start as a stand-up comedian in a city and people have a feeling about you. You might've made some mistakes in the beginning. You, some things might've happened to you and they always remember you as that kind of person. And then when you leave town and go someplace else and start fresh, it's amazing what happens when you come back to town a year or two later, all of a sudden you're like walking on water. And But you have to make that change sometimes. And I couldn't face being around comedians who knew what had happened to me. And it was a, it was a weird thing. It was almost like a positive negative thing. If you've ever meet, met people like that, where you're at like a, you know, a hotel and somebody's like, Oh, Mr. Katz, how are you? What can I do for you? Can I help you? Is there anything, whatever? And, and after a while you're like, Jesus Christ, this is your positivity is, is, is damaging me. 
And so that's what it was like in Boston. People were so wonderful and so supportive, but I didn't want to be reminded of it all the time. So I went to New York and I started a new life there and I opened up a comedy club in Greenwich Village. And what you slowly realize when you go to a town like New York City is that you have the good and the bad. You have the best and the worst of everything um, in every capacity. And a lot of artists that you meet along the way in the comedy clubs are, you know, they're troubled. They have a lot of issues. There's a lot of problems going on. Um, they're either uh, drinking too much. They're either um, doing too many drugs. Uh, they're self-destructive on stage with their audiences. Um, and they just have problems that just don't go away. And... I remember something uh, about a, a time in that process where I met a young man named Mike Royce. And when I met him and when he first started doing sets at my club, um, I was just blown away by what a nice person he was. And every time I'd go home after a set of his particularly that I liked or that I thought was interesting, I'd go home and I'd go back to my house in the fetal position as I went to bed and think to myself, how is it going to be possible for this guy to make it being so nice? I've never met anybody this nice in the business that's ever really truly gotten by all the sharks and the craziness and the difficulties that exist and the obstacles that happen along the way. Um, normally, you have to have that, that fire burning, that thing that's just so, so strong. Now, I didn't know Mike as well as other people, but my instinct told me, that he wasn't a fire-burning kind of guy. He was a guy who just let his talent speak for itself and thought in his mind that the way he was going to get to the next level was by doing great work, but also being a guy who everyone felt safe around. No matter how crazy it got, he would be the guy in the middle saying, everything's going to be okay. And I related to him, even though he doesn't know this, because I was that guy. Because I remember when bad things happened to people around me early on in my life, I was the kind of guy saying to my mom, mom, everything's going to be okay. Or my sister, everything's going to be okay. And it carried over to me. But I met so few artists that were like that. And Mike was somebody like that. But I just couldn't figure out how he was going to get through. And there was a show that started in New York that was an incarnation of Evening at the Improv during the boom called Caroline's Comedy Hour at um, Caroline Hirsch's Club on Broadway, 49th and Broadway. And the shows were hosted by a number of different hosts. Again, uh, hosted by people who had their own idiosyncrasies and their own issues, and uh, but who were brilliant artists, Colin Quinn being one of them. 
and the late Richard Jenny being the other one um, that I remember. And I remember hearing that Mike got a job writing and doing sketches for the show. And I thought to myself, wow, quietly, this man figured out a way to navigate and ride off into a show that required somebody to be the everything's going to be okay guy. Because if you've ever been around the back behind the scenes of Caroline's Comedy Club, you know that there's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes that are very dramatic, especially in one of their first television productions they ever did for um, network television. And I always thought of Mike as a guy who would go in and be able to do this kind of thing if people trusted him. And he went in and he quickly asserted himself to be somebody very valuable. But the main thing that I remember is I always talk about creating holy shit moments and how do you create those moments and what you do. So he got in as a writer, but what he did was something that I'd never seen before and I've never seen since. And they were these sketches that to me were the funniest things to this day that I've ever seen in my life. And they were called Worst Elevator Fears. He didn't write them. He didn't write them. I'm sure that he was involved in doing something in them, though. Uh, and he was a character in them every single one where he was a guy in a suit, a businessman that would walk into an elevator. The doors would open. He'd walk in, the doors would close. And in literally like six to 10 seconds, some horrible thing would happen in the elevator. Either a woman would be pregnant or water would break. Or, you know, somebody would just go crazy and be mentally ill in the elevator or whatever it was. And... I watched these things and I laughed out loud in my house as I was on that couch again, watching him as an actor, not only a guy who helped write things for that show and helped put things together and ideas with great people, legendary people like Colin Quinn and Richard Jenny working in the greatest or one of the greatest comedy clubs in the world as a young person and one of the best produced stand-up comedy shows on television. But he figured out a way to get on camera, and when he got on camera, he blew me away and blew everybody away. And normally, as I tell these stories to open up these things, there's some kind of unique or special message or whatever it being. And I think if I have any message from this at all, Looking back all those years ago, I can honestly say that to all of you out there, if you work harder than everybody else, if you are not an asshole, if you treat people with respect and dignity, and you are the everything's going to be okay guy, I can guarantee you you will win in your career. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mad!
mass communicate. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now about the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. Uh, this is Barry Katz, and my guest today, I'm, I, I can't even tell you how excited I am that he's here. We're going to have an amazing time, and it's going to be very inspirational. But let me introduce him to you, and there's a lot of things to talk about with this guy. Uh, he originally grew up in Syracuse, New York, which is a an area where my dad went to school at Syracuse University. Uh, um, he went to film school at Ithaca College, and then he moved to New York City and uh, became a stand-up comedian and then uh, performed on Late Night with Conan O'Brien and a number of different television shows. He then segued into serving as a warm-up comedian for several shows like Maury Povich, um, Dana Carvey, and Spin City. Um, In the late 90s, he was a staff writer on a really groundbreaking show that I remember from the Scalar Brothers called Apartment 2F, and he was hired by the legendary Bill Lawrence to pen an episode of Spin City. A partner in crime of his in New York, Ray Romano, joined up for the first time where they worked together in writing his best-selling New York Times um, book called Everything in a Kite. Uh, Later on that year, Mike wrote uh, the SportsCenter sketch for Ray's Saturday Night Live appearance, which was named the 50... one of the 50 greatest SNL sketches of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. He joined the writing staff of Everybody Loves Raymond in 1999 and eventually became one of its executive producers, the highest honor and credit you can get on a television (laughs) show. In 2003, he was nominated for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing, and he and the writers and producers won the Comedy Emmy in both 2003 and 2005. 
after Raymond. Uh, he segued into obviously a much less respected gig working with Louis C.K. as an executive producer on HBO's first ever sitcom, Lucky Louis, which was an amazing show. And I'm joking, of course. Uh, incredible show. He co-created TNT's Men of a Certain Age with Ray, again serving as executive producer and showrunner. And um, it won the prestigious Peabody Award in 2011, as well as the Television Academy Award, Academy Honors Award for programming. Uh, Mike currently is under a deal at 20th Century Fox and executive produces and co-show runs the critically acclaimed show for Fox entitled Enlisted. Please welcome my guest today. Awesome, Mike Royce. <laughs> Thank you. I first of all want to apologize for the length of that bio. <laughs> <coughs> That's pretty much no st stone unturned. Um, yeah, it's pretty pretty big bio there. When I don't think I can follow that. It's yeah. st stealing a, stealing a line from you earlier. Yes. <laughs> um, when Maury Povich is in there, you know it's that you've got everything. <laughs> Not, not yeah, to. I was. I couldn't find Jerry Springer in here, though, <laughs> or Judge Judy. <laughs> yeah, those are the only two. That was a you know warm up was. Um, it's funny. I was listening to DJ DJ Nash, who you had on, and the, I, I'm so I can't. You know, you sit across from people, and it's so like humbling that you listen to the. I can't even believe that you would listen to the. Podcast. I have a dog that I have to walk. <laughs> You know, we all need 20 minutes here and there of podcasts. Sometimes Mark Maron's too angry. You know, you have to switch over. Sometimes I've listened to all the all of Doug Benson stuff. You'll never get angry here. And yeah, yeah, this is very spiritual. Your opening was very spiritual. It was very inspiring. It was. Uh, I realize you're gonna you're you're kind of undermining your entire business model, right? Like eventually, anything you can possibly tell anyone is gonna be out there. And then why just get the tapes, right? The tapes, because I'm a thousand years old. Get the the what other podcast? That's right. I'll yeah. I'll be I'll be fired by everybody, which yes. uh, which will be uh... the, the managerial version of uh, of her, <laughs> <laughs> where they just go around with you in their ears all the time. What's the advice? You know, punch number forty two. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Make my own luck or whatever. It'll yeah. save a lot of money. I thought you were going to say early on. It's like, hey, I have to go out and I have to kick my dog. <laughs> you're gonna say walk well, not? But as I like to do with these crazy podcasts, is I love to start at the beginning. Yes, because that's my jumping off point. And so, take me back, like for you know wherever it was you were before you had any inkling of wanting to be in show business, and tell me what happened to get you thinking about it. Uh, well, that's funny. That's way back because. Uh, I was a young, I was a nerd of many stripes growing up. I was? was? Am, continues, I continue <laughs> to be a nerd. I've just shed certain, like my daughter is an, is a, you know, a, she's one of the nerds that everyone likes now. How and old's she, your daughter? 15. So That's she's incredible. anime. She loves, she like knows, she's a big Tumblr person. She knows everything that's, you know, like all these graphic novels she's into. That's like the cool nerd, you know, and I liked that kind of stuff way back when in, you know, sp uh, comic books and, but I kind of shed all that because what happened was I saw a musical and it was the pajama game. Where'd you see it? <laughs> uh, it was a, a, like a rival high school 
And my friends and I used to make movies and we were making a James Bond movie, of course, and um, we needed a girl. And, you know, we're 14 or something like that. And uh, we, (laughs) my friend's mom was like, I know a girl who's an actor and she's in this, you know, musical at whatever high school was, I can't even remember. And we went to see really the pajama game is the most musical of musicals. It's so, you know, froofy and everyone's in their pajamas and there's the music is, you know, it was the furthest thing. My two friends just looked on slack jaw. Like this is the worst nightmare they could imagine because they weren't that kind of nerd. They were a comic book nerd and, uh, um, musicals were, that's another camp. That's another tribe, you know? And for me, it was like a conversion ceremony. Because I was just like uh, something about being on stage. I don't know. Just watching every moment of it going like, I want to, I just music, you know, I got to do that. Like I I have to be on stage. And and again, you were 14 or I want to say 13 or 14 or something like that. That was the first time where I thought like show business, you know, something to do with show business. Before that it was, you know, comic books and I mean films, but I wasn't thinking that was the first time I was like. I got to be on the stage, you know? Again, I thought you were going to say, that was the first time I looked at something and I said, I got to dance. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's what you were going to say. That is, that, um, that never came to fruition, <laughs> even though I tried. That was really what, what destroyed the dream. Cause then I got into musicals in high school and, um, I was never a dancer, but I was always, that's where I went on. I always got the funny parts, you know? And so it, that sort of all progressed into, well, I have some proof. Like I was never a class clown. I was always just the guy who sat in the back with my friends and whispered insults. And then, you know, what's that? And then I, I would just shut up and really just kept to myself and shy. And, um, but then I'd get on stage and I, they'd hand me lines to say, and I could, I sort of blossomed. Um, so that was, the, that was sort of what led me to think, well, um, essentially that combined with watching every comedy show that was on, I was a big Saturday Night Live guy, you know, Letterman is my foreman of experience. I used to sit in bed and watch every morning, the morning show. You remember the morning show? Yeah. Yeah. Th- that was, he was just a genius. So, to, so I'm watching him knowing that's like that, the, just that's the pinnacle of comedy. If I could ever do that, that would be my dream come true. And uh, those, you know, that sort of all combined to once I went to New York, you know, I, like I said, I was listening to DJ and <laughs> DJ apparently went on stage. DJ Nash. DJ Nash. His uh, story includes a lot of, uh, I would just go on stage anywhere and and I was the king of the colleges and I was big. At co- I was deathly afraid to do comedy at college uh, because I just figured if I bomb, I'm with my audience, you know, for four years. It's like a cruise ship that never stops. There were a couple of guys that I knew who were film students and they would go on and they, you know, and, uh, you know, it's all about, obviously it's all about confidence. <laughs> and um, it was the beginning of a formative experience in my life, which is, I'm always best when expectations are low. <laughs> Well, you're in the right place. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is very impressive. You can't see. Well, have you turned the cameras outside to see your view? We haven't done that, but you can tell our audience about it if you want. You can see everything 
from, I'm not even sure what I'm looking at over there, but that, that is downtown LA you where can the Staples downtown. Center is. This is how, I've been here 15 years. I don't know where the fuck I am, but um, and, uh, right up down there is a yeah. CAA and around the corner, uh, ICM. So, and then right next door to us is Resolution, the Jeff Berg's new company. And then the other way is the ocean and uh, Santa Monica. You, see the, the, right, you see the plane crashing into the building right yes. now. Yes. You can, you, he has a perch above all that's happening in Los Angeles. So it's very, very strange uh, up here. It's wonderful. It's, it's, uh, I love it here and uh, I'm glad you feel comfortable here. It's fantastic. But, um, but yeah, I I wasn't bold enough to do stand up comedy till I moved to New York and I moved to New York just because my college roommate moved there and uh, I was a film major and I wanted to do writing and, and that was the plan. And I never in a million years thought I would do stand up comedy just because I never, ever thought I'll just never have the balls, you know? And then you get to New York and there's the mid eighties, the late eight mid to mid eighties. And there's a million open mics and, you know, Pips was a thing way out. Pips in was in Brooklyn and it was one of the longest, oldest comedy clubs around. I think it'd been Christ in the eighties. I think it had already been around like 20 years or something yes. like that. Yes. It was, I, I don't know why I ended up choosing Pips, but I think I was living on Staten Island. So maybe. And it's odd that you chose that because Pips was, as was probably the most similar to uh, a Boston a comedy club because you know it's more of a neighborhood. There's a bar there. It's, yeah. it's 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 hard to get laughs there. And you normally the people that do really well there were the people like Angel Salazar yes. or Rick Avilas or people who are very high energy. And you weren't high energy. No, no. And I'm not. Uh, the thing that gave me courage was no one will ever. I'll just walk out of here. I'll never see any of these people again. That I'll just endure it. Uh, that's the worst that can happen, you know. Meanwhile, I had you know written forty-five minutes of material and gotten my confidence way up. Like, look at all this material I have. You wrote forty-five minutes before sure, you ever went a on solid stage. Solid forty-five. Now it came out of my now, mouth. Now he's being—he's joking <laughs> here, but I just want to share something with you. In all of my life and my career, <clears throat> I have never known anyone who wrote 45 minutes in a notebook before they did their first open mic night. I've never known anybody who did that. Computerized. I had a word processor who was very ahead of the game at that point. Um, and it was like sheafs of, you know, dot matrix paper with just, and I mean, I really was like, oh my God, I got, and you could tell how, how wayward my brain was because I had just seen Dennis Miller. He was the, he was very, you know, breaking through at that point. He was on Letterman and you just start to copy people. And I didn't really copy Dennis Miller, but I thought he's my kind of guy, you know, maybe, maybe I'm like him. And I think it was because he was so smart that I wanted to emulate him. But of course my personality couldn't be, uh, it couldn't be more different than, than Dennis Miller, but that was in my head. So I wrote reams of stuff and I just went, Oh my God, I'm so, what do I choose from? I have so much material. And, um, you know, I went down there and very quickly, started to get really, really scared. Um, and it went well, and I'm not proud of this, but my very first laugh, it went well for a reason. My very first laugh came at the expense of another comedian, the one who was before me, which is, you know, uh, taboo. It's uh, one of the biggest taboos, <laughs> but you didn't, but you didn't know at the time. I didn't know at the time. And I think even now I can let myself off the hook. What happened was this guy, whoever's I'm seeing, I wish I could remember, I can't remember anybody who was there, not one name. Um, 
guy, the MC comes up. He says, we're, we're, we got to bump you because I get this guy out of here. And even then I kind of knew what that meant. I thought, oh no, someone really good's going on, you know? And instead it was the opposite. It was some open micer that he wanted to get rid of. They were, he was driving them crazy. I guess he came every week or something and they hated him. And I don't know why they had to put him on, but they put him on. And he was a guy who was very odd, just an oddball. And his whole act was he would do some kind of joke and then he would do, this was his bit for the night. He would do some kind of joke and then say, and now I'd like to do that same joke for you, like from Transylvania. And he would turn around, put in vampire teeth and turn like, you know, novelty store vampire teeth and do the same joke with the big, stupid vampire accent. You know, and it just, you know, he just ate it, ate it, ate it, ate it. I, I, I wish I knew who he was because either he never did stand up again or he's. Some... I only know one guy who did vampire humor. That was Dominic Fig. No, I believe I think this guy probably was from Transylvania. I Fantastic. feel like he was East Eastern European. He was an oddball. And, and so you he know, dies a miserable death, and then you get introduced. I go on, and the first thing I do is, like, I'm going to start my routine, but first I'd like to show it to you from Transylvania. <laughs> and I turn around, like, I'm going to put the teeth in, and everyone laughs. And I go, oh, my God, wouldn't that be horrible? <laughs> and I think the guy was out of the room, and, again, I'm not proud of it. But it got things off. It kind of greased the wheels. But you changed the, you know, what's interesting is you adjusted that's such a great metaphor for your career and everything or, or anybody's <laughs> career. Someone else. No, not shitting with, <laughs> not shitting on somebody, but assessing a situation that isn't the way it was supposed to be right. five minutes earlier and adjusting to be more successful at the moment or whatever it is. It's almost like driving a car and all of a sudden like a, a ball comes out or something you have to adjust or else you... Yes. You know, there's something bad that happened. It certainly turned into kind of my early talent as far as being an MC and kind of sort of what I ended up doing a lot of in New York City. And and yeah, I went on there. I did okay. I went on another thing where I brought everyone from my day job and killed. What was your day job? I worked. I was a temp. I worked for uh, MetLife, you know, at that time. Yeah, he was making good money, you know, doing word processing. It's always very responsible. That was a thing. Maybe too responsible sometimes, but um, that's part of I think what led into my. I think that was my mentality. That's why I became an M, sort of drifted into emceeing so much. I just always had a responsibility. I really wanted everybody to be having a good time. And that was you know, that combined with the paralyzing guilt of people not having a good time. No, but it's true. <laughs> and you mentioned you know how you mentioned something about that person. Um, I remember one of my first shows I saw an MC really do something that blew me away is that there was a, there was a show and the guy, as often happens, it, ha it happens all the time. There's just somebody who goes on, there could be like, they could be the biggest act in the world or the least experienced act. And for some reason they just don't connect and it's like crickets and it's silent. And if it's a longer set, like 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, it's very painful and normally audiences in the city are more accepting of it and they will not, they will sit through it respectfully. Whereas audiences in the outlying areas are not as generous and they'll, <laughs> right. they'll boo right. you off or they'll yell at you. And I remember this guy went on and for 20 minutes, he just did not get a laugh, but he just kept going like he was getting laughs. And it was one of the most horrible sets I ever <laughs> saw somebody do. 
and the MC came out and he could have shit all over this guy and gotten the gray lap, but he was like just high energy. He got it together. He's like, okay, let's hear it for this person. Let's go. It's great. You guys are great. You're a great crowd and just kept it positive and right. moving. And two minutes later, you forgot that somebody didn't do well. And that's what you used to do. Yeah. MC wise, that's immediately what you, uh, what you learn is that yes, you're there to support everybody else. And, um, I seem to have an instinct for that. And, um, later I kind of the things that I learned, I had to unlearn because you can do too much emceeing and you have no act <laughs> by the time you're done. <clears throat> and I was, you know, for the early part of the nineties, once I started working at the comedy Tower, cause basically the reason I started working there and that was my big, I had passed at other clubs, but the place I really started working a lot was, was the cellar was because Bill Grunfest was transitioning into, into writing. So he had gotten a job. I think it was on designing women, but he was moving out here. <clears throat> Bill Grunfest came to New York from Boston, I believe, or someplace around those areas. And he came to the comedy cellar and started comedy there, uh, working with the owner of the club who has since passed away, uh, Manny Dorman, who is an amazing man. Mm -hmm. And then Bill, I ended up doing what you're doing and left and, and, there was a there was a spot open for somebody to really like a lot of spots, a lot of spots, <clears throat> just hours and hours and hours of hosting because he hosted every show unless he was busy or something. But I mean, he was there six or seven nights a week and the acts that worked there weren't interested. They were usually at that time. Well, still, they they really had they picked the, the comedy that would pick the cream of the crop. There was still that sort of sh clubs fighting with each other a lot back then. At there least the were. And when I opened my club. I don't know why Manny, this is what, uh, you know, Manny and Esty, who's still there now, um, Manny was always amazing to me. And I opened my club up, literally, I would say, if you were to draw a line from my club to his and it was through buildings or whatever, maybe 200 meters away or right. at, at, at best <coughs> a quarter of a mile, but doubtful. Yeah. Um, and I used to have people passing out flyers on the corners of all the streets and things. And he never, he never messed with me. He never really was that hard on me. And I think it was because, again, like you said, I was the underdog. And right. he didn't think that I was going to amount to anything or was going to happen. When things started getting really busy and really crazy at my club, then he, <laughs> then he tried to tell comics not to work there. But... When you do that, there's certain comics that just doesn't work with, right. you know, if you're not going to tell Chappelle not to work a certain club or right. it's just not going to work. It's only going to work for the people who are, are fearful. Right. Um, but I want you, if you don't mind, because I have so much to talk to you about, but I've never talked about the comedy seller in those days and what it was like with the Olive Tree Cafe above and the... Um, music club downstairs, the yeah, Cafe Wa. Um, but also about Manny, who is no longer with us. And I think it's one thing I, I, I learned from Manny that a lesson about life and, and business and people. When you went to the comedy cellar, the 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 the, the servers there were the most beautiful women and they were like but they weren't they never wore makeup 
They never wore high heels. They just were just, they just were who they were. And they were spectacularly beautiful inside and out. And every comic was always trying to sleep with them uh, with a lot of times little or no success. John Stewart was the only one. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I remember there was this wonderful server who... I was having a meeting with Manny in that first booth as you walk in. And uh, we were meeting and there was a round tray on the table, like a serving tray. And this woman came up and she she picked up the tray and he looked at her and he said, you're fired. And I was like in shock. And she said, Manny, what are you joking? And he said, no, I'm not joking. You're fired. And she's like, well, why, why would you fire me? What did I do wrong? So I told you when you came here, when you started training every server here, that tray stays with you at all times. Mm. That tray never leaves your possession because if that tray leaves your possession, that means you're not working as hard as you could. You're not selling as many drinks as you could. And that's what this is all about here. You're fired. And she looked at them with tears in her eyes. It was horrifying to be there, but it was an amazing lesson. She said, but that was the first time I ever left it on the table. And he looked at her and he said, no, that was the first time I ever saw you leave it on the table. Right. And true to form in every, every profession, these things that happen with people is why you either get to the next level or you don't. And Manny was hard that way, but he was also great with the artists, but he was hard with certain artists and there were certain artists that he wouldn't pass. Yes. And just to, (laughs) I just want to share one other thing about the comedy seller before you describe the atmosphere and what it's like. The comedy seller to any comedian listening or anybody who's been in a comedy club Ordinarily, if you were to show anybody a video link of this, a 360 degree link of this room, (laughs) anybody would say, this is a hell gig. This is a fucking hell gig. Bathroom. And let me explain it. (laughs) So the ceilings, you can touch with your hand. Um, There's pipes everywhere. It's a long rectangular room that's literally three times as long or four times as long as it is wide. Okay. There's only one bathroom in the entire Olive Tree Cafe upstairs and downstairs in the comedy club. And in order to get there, you have to walk through the comedy club. The row to walk through the comedy club is in back of one set of chairs that's in front of a stage that's maybe three inches high with a piano on it that leaves a comedian about maybe five or six feet by eight feet room and their head very close to the ceiling. And the lights are right over that walkway, it seems. And there are people walking back and forth, back and forth all through the night with the majority of the people you're playing to and back of them who can't see because people are walking back and forth. <laughs> it's it's literally like probably, arguably, if you were building a comedy club, it would be your hundredth choice <laughs> out of a hundred. But what's odd about it is 
if you were to ask every comedian in New York City and poll them anonymously, where would you want to work on a Saturday night? They would say the comedy cellar. It was killer. So describe <laughs> Manny... The, the 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 atmosphere what it was like well, the late night spots the whole process yeah that was i covered a long period there and i covered a giant period of 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 transition cuz i was there in the late 80s when there were still people coming then i was there i was just a little bit there when i really took over was the early 90s when everybody stopped there was a recession and it was horrible there was a good 2 years probably longer where the weeknights were, you know, barely anybody coming in. And then it started to get much better as the nineties went on. And by the time I moved to California, they were back and now they're doing, you know, two shows a night weeknights. It's crazy there now, ever since I think the late nineties, um, as the M as the MC, a lot of the time people would come in Comics from out of town, really good comics, people from Saturday Night Live, you know, cast members. <laughs> and I was not allowed to put anybody on without Manny saying yes. And it wasn't like any other comedy club where you go into catch, or you go into uh, any other comedy club. <laughs> if a celebrity walks in, you put them on. There's a, just a known, you know, there's a pecking order that you just have in your head. You just know who can bump who and nothing could get done because Manny, you know, to his credit, he just had control. He wanted control over his club. And he, I think he had been burned by, you know, some comic putting on his friend who stinks, you know, and, and he wasn't as um, worried about who's a giant celebrity and who's not, you know, he, if he, if he really knew who someone was, he would be all for uh, putting them on. But like, I would have to, you know, Adam Sandler would come in. I would have to trudge upstairs instead of going, oh, yeah, here you go. I'll put you right on. I have to go upstairs, find Manny. Uh, Adam Sandler's here. He's the guy from Saturday Night Live, you know, and then explain. And then, yeah, okay, yeah, it's okay. You can put him on, you know. Tell me <laughs> tell me an argument you had a fight to put somebody on who he didn't want to put on. Well, let's see. I don't know that I... I know you're not an arguer, but tell no, me. No, no, I'm just trying to think if there was anybody... Who would, uh, there, there, if there was anybody particular, I mean, he, you know, he knew, I'm trying to think if there was somebody who was famous that he had no idea was famous. And I can't think of anybody off the top of my head right now, but I know that happened. That's okay. Keep going. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it was, uh, um, and he, and there were certain people who, you know, Todd, Todd Berry was always somebody who, who needed to be working there. And at first they just, they just didn't see it. You know, David Tell was somebody who I was working there before David Tell, which was crazy. Well, was what happened a lot. And this is, and again, unfortunately, Manny isn't here to say one way or the other, but the goal for me at the Boston comedy club, my club around the corner was to find the great people that people weren't putting on. Right. And Attell, Kevin Brennan, Chappelle, Jay Moore, you know, Wanda, all these people. And once Manny found out that certain people were working there and identified through the comics that they were extraordinary. Yes. He would, Jim Nor, you know, people, he would start putting. That was exactly, that's on. exactly right. He had to know and be certain this guy's a killer, you know. 
And if it was just somebody who, regardless, he didn't quite know if it was just, if it was just me, just, you know, well, the guy came in, you know, and, and also people doing time for, for Letterman or something like that. You, you know, it, it was, it was a little bit like the Trey story. <laughs> it was a little bit of, I'm not, I can't, I can't just make an exception for you because if he finds out he might be really pissed off. And, um, to his credit, the comedy at that club was extremely, the quality was just always really high, you know? And yeah, they didn't really <clears throat> deal with open mic until they instituted this late night thing that I then became the, I guess, kind of the booker of that became the bane of my existence <laughs> because, uh, as they, as they saw, as business in the early nineties, wasn't that great. They decided to sort of, you know, turn things over at like 1230 or one to people doing five minutes a piece in hopes they would bring a few people by, I think. And uh, I had to be in charge of that whole schedule. Tell me some of the comedians that are now household names that you saw bomb on a regular basis <laughs> from Judah, midnight. Judah Freelander was a big, he would come in on a skateboard and a major, you know, 135 guy. Um, and, uh. I I think even by the time I left, he was just getting, that was, you know. And a lot of people don't know this. Judah Friedlander was a, a male model, believe it or not, <laughs> before he got into uh, the look that he has now <laughs> from 30 Rock. Who else came in that uh, oh, that, that, that became can't. a household name? It was, um, this is terrible that I'm, I'm sure there are others. Because there were, but there were many more people who were not destined to become household names. That is true. And um, I would turn it over to a. I said I turned it over to a late night MC the moment I got permission to do that, um, which was always kind of a dicey proposition. <laughs> um, but it was that that the early nineties there and everywhere was. I mean, I the, like you say with the comedy show, the way it would work, it would start at nine. I would have to start often with no people. And it wasn't, they, you know, your club, you'd have people out on the street passing out flyers, this kind of thing. The show didn't really start till there was a show to start. The seller was the opposite. The seller would just start. I would go on stage and there would not be an audience. Yeah, he ran it like a Broadway show. It yes. didn't matter. It didn't matter if there was nobody there, you would go on. I'm and talking, to, talking the waiter, to nobody. talking to the waitress, you know, just having conversations. And he wasn't a guy who would ever can't it seemed like he never canceled a show he would never admit defeat yes whereas uh as neil brennan so eloquently said here when he was he was called by every comedian no show neil uh <laughs> there you know he would cancel a lot of shows at the boston <laughs> when he was there one of the things neil brennan said to me in the podcast he did here which i thought was amazingly profound and i think it uh it sits with your career he said there has never been anything significant that has ever happened in his career that was not generated from him hanging around the comedy club so take me back to the first time you met ray romano and when did you think that he started to feel comfortable about, around you like what was the moment that happened where you finally realized wow this guy believes in me you know it was <clears throat> i think the first time i worked with him was a week in princeton catch a rising star in princeton and i was emceeing and he was middling i think 
I think Don McHenry was was headlining. Don oh, McHenry, of course. Don McHenry became a great, great writer with his writing partner, Bob Shaw. They wrote a number of animated uh, projects for, for and, Disney. Yeah. Um, amazing. And Bob Shaw, just to digress, one of my favorite jokes that he ever did. He was like an older guy, but had done Letterman. He said, you know you're getting old as a guy when you drive over a speed bump and your tit shake. <laughs> That's what I remember about Bob Shaw. <laughs> anyway, keep going. Well, I think that Ray, uh, I did the week there and I did pretty well. I was, you know, 15 minutes up front and that was not a hard club. Um, and uh, I, he got me into the cellar from that week. I wasn't in the cellar. He introduced me to to Bill and they put me on and I don't know, you know, maybe... I. I I don't know if Ray just didn't recommend a lot of people. I don't know if I, I'm pretty sure I didn't wow them. That's what I'm trying to say. I think that Ray's recommendation somehow meant a lot to them. Um, obviously, he's a, he was a great comic even at that time. But for whatever reason, they I didn't realize until later what a big deal it was to get into that club. I knew, you know, I started out with John Stewart, who immediately leapt, you know, uh, graduation classes way ahead of everybody. He was just working everywhere when we were all just still dicking around in the open mics. He was just, I saw him at his, one of his first open mics. He went on and did five minutes I would do today. He was just good right away. Amazing. But everybody else, you know, he, so he was working the comedy cellar. Nobody else was working there. And um, so it was really just, I, I don't know if Ray, I don't think he saw anything. I think he saw that I was a nice guy who deserved a break. <laughs> and, um, and it ended up working out because at that, you know, when Bill needed to leave, I was right there. And, um, I had kind of the skill set. I wasn't that good to begin with, but I grew into the position, you know? Um, but I wouldn't have been there without Ray, you know? And then we just kind of became friends and I can't even say we became close, close friends. We didn't hang out really besides the comedy clubs. We just became guys who, he, he is one of the first comics I ever saw in New York. And he's the first comic that I saw that I wanted to be like. And what's interesting about Ray, for those of you who don't know, Ray's comedy wasn't always, <laughs> wasn't always as uh, amazing <laughs> as it became. And he's one of the few comedians, norm normally a comedian uh, who you look at and you're like, wow, that is unbelievable. That's the way they started. You know, Stephen Wright didn't start off doing, hey, what's up, everybody? You know, it's like he started the way he is now. And, you know, Todd Barry started the way he is now. Dave Attell, let me turn this thing to funny. Still the same kind of thing. But Ray used props and things. And one thing he did at the end of his act, which was amazing, you would never believe that he could ever do it or whatever. He did this thing where he had a rubber band. And this was his closer. He put it around his head and he would say, I'd like to do an impression for you. And if I'm not mistaken, this is my impression of Hiroshima or I believe it was Nagasaki, Nagasaki, yes. whatever. And he would do something with his temples or whatever with his head. And so the rubber band would slowly move up his hairline. And then in one full sloop, it would go up and his hair would go in like a little like mushroom cloud at the top. And that was his big closer. That was his big closer. And I'm sure that if I were to, he was here right now, he would be probably 
want to jump over the couch and not well they do. actually put that on the show I one of the early like the first season because they were working any stand-up bit in there and he's in bed with Deborah and uh you know has this trick that he I don't know how they set it up but he does it's it exists on uh and that son of a bitch still has the hair to do it um, he can still do it <laughs> um yeah so that was weird that you know because so he had some incredible routines and amazing bits that were so well constructed but then he'd have certain bits that he didn't let go of that were always killing well the thing about him that is true to this day and i feel like i had an early i don't know insight into or audience with is he just looked like a guy who was talking you know it's a simple comedian principle there were plenty of guys up there who could you know they had a lot of good jokes and but he he just he his timing was amazing he had a lot of jokes that weren't just like super punchlines. It was just the way he paused a little bit, like he thought he was done talking and then he said something and the surprise came from more the timing because you, you know, he was taking you this way with just his body language and the inflection in his voice. And instead he would go a different way or, you know, the surprise came from like Cosby, really just a guy who was talking about his family which grew and he started to lose the props. But even then he had the thing about his dad driving and, um, and the early stuff. And it was, it was, he didn't feel like a, that's not a stand up comic. That's like a, that's a funny person. That's a funny persona. Yeah, And it was all in one of the things he was great in talking about family and family is something that everybody in the world loves. And I used to watch him and I just used to love the way he talked about his uh, Italian mother and how, you know, um, yeah. listen, mom, no more. Well, that means two more scoops. <laughs> and then he'd have this inflection in his voice. And believe me, if, if you want to stop your Italian mother from giving you more, you have to shoot her. <laughs> right, right. Mom, put down, put down the spoon, <laughs> you know. Put down the cannoli. Put down the cannoli. Yeah, and so what, whatever the bit was, and yeah. it just... It just the way he the timing of it, like you said, ma, you have you you have to shoot her. I, and I, it just it was like you couldn't. I he, think the reason he it all worked out for the best, obviously. But the reason why he was one of those comics who who hung around for a while and didn't get a break until later was because he made it look too easy. He he didn't, uh, and it was very New York. So he's in New York, and I think people overlooked he's you know ethnic or whatever. There was that whole thing. But it, it, he made it look easy. He didn't ever look like he was breaking a sweat. And uh, but this is what know. else he did, uh, which uh, it's no surprise that you two work together, because I always felt the same way about him as I felt about you. Um, <laughs> well, thank you for those of you who have never met Ray Romano or never been around Ray Romano. Uh, one of the most wonderful people you will ever meet in your entire life. There's never been a situation in my entire career where I've ever known him to say anything, to do anything that could even remotely be considered by anybody to be derogatory. He's just, he's, he's incredible, incredible person. Yes. Yes. He was great uh, to work with. He is, uh, he's a big fan of, you know, other comedians, he would come in. One of my biggest shameful moments was <laughs> I've been working at the comedy cellar for a while and Ray comes bounding in and he starts to set up all his food. He's getting food from upstairs. He's setting up to like watch somebody. 
like, I'm not even sure. I must have been on that night, but it was a, kind of like a weird, like he's just setting up to watch somebody. I'm like, what's going on? He goes, oh, this guy, this new guy, David Tell, you got to see him. And meanwhile, I, Dave and I, Dave and I come up, um, every, we'd had day jobs together and we used to do every open mic together. And uh, so I'm just seeing him like, oh, this new guy. I'm like, I don't remember you setting up to watch me ever <laughs> like this, but I get it. Cause, but that's how you know you're doing something special as an artist. If you have people who are in your profession who are coming into a room to see you, you know that you're doing the right stuff. And Atel uh, in New York and Sam Kinison at the Comedy Store in Los Angeles at the end of the night, you would want to see that set. Right. You would want to see what happened and how it went about because Atel and Kinison, they had something in common, believe it or not. They had no fear. They had no fear that Mike Royce used to have about doing <laughs> shows at his college and wondering whether people were going to think in his fraternity. <laughs> Dave Attell didn't seem to give a shit what people think. Sam Kinison didn't seem to give a shit. He right. did what was in his mind and what felt right, and it just turned out that everybody loved it and wanted to come in. And the thought that everybody was coming in and watching either one of them was uncomfortable to them. Uh, they they couldn't believe that anybody would want to watch them or whatever. They didn't mind it, but they were like, um, and they would perform to those people in the back a lot of right. times as well. Right, right. And so, uh, so how did you start working with Ray? How did it all come about? I know you worked on a book with him. He chose you to help him go. Did you ghostwrite the book or did you write it with him? Yeah, I wrote it with him. He had another writer as well. <coughs> um, comedian or another uh, no I, um, he had written oh my god this is terrible see uh, what happens a lot of times when you're a comedian and you're writing a book you get recommended people who are ghost writers who all they do their whole careers is get paid a certain amount of money normally between fifteen and fifty thousand dollars versus a percentage of the book sales and they don't put their name on it but they help you structure it you sit down with them they record everything they type everything out the most important thing in a comedy book that you'll see when you read them is called a button in each chapter what happens is the chapter starts off a certain way the first paragraph and you'll notice at the very end of the paragraph there's something that's said at the end of the last two sentences that ties in right. very important for the structure it's a different structure than sitcoms or screenwriting and a lot of times comedians use somebody like that but then they bring on somebody like mike for instance somebody that uh, chris rock I know works with a lot in projects and I think it's common knowledge is a guy named Lance Crowther who is to Chris Rock what you were to Ray Romano in that particular situation. Yeah, it, it worked out. You know, I knew he he was looking for additional material to he to his credit. He didn't want it to just be here's all my jokes, you know, very uh, badly structured. He wanted to make them into essentially essays and make it make it really uh, a humor book. And um, I he needed more material, basically. And I was faxing him stuff and he was like, it was stuff actually, you know, I'm very flattered by it because he started doing some of it in his act. It ended up coming out the other way, you know. Um, 
But I was able to add, I think because I knew him so well from sitting there and watching every New York comedian by sitting in the back of the comedy center. Um, I knew I could have written everybody's book. Um, but he, I knew how, and I knew his rhythms. I, you know, I knew what kind of stuff he liked and, and I was able to compliment it pretty well. And eventually he just kind of flew me out and we sat in his office for two months and put the thing together. And, um, that combined with, um, when he hosted Saturday night live and I, I wrote a sketch that did pretty well, that, that more was just, uh, Phil Rosenthal came out for that show and he... Phil Rosenthal was the showrunner of Everybody Loves Raymond. So he yes. came out for which show? For when Ray hosted Saturday Night Live and okay. they had written a, a couple sketches and I had written one and we all helped each other, you know. Um, I, I, I don't even know if Phil considers this a thing, but to me it was like I was proving that I'm not just Ray's friend and some boob who's, you know... So Ray asks you to help write this, uh, this bit. Now, when you go to Saturday Night Live as an outsider... Yes... It's uh, it's daunting, especially as an outside writer, because there's all those writers there. They do not like you. No. They do not want well, you there. They do not want to see your sketch succeed. They don't want it that way because they want to be the ones to know that they got something through. So Lauren can look at it and say, wow, yes. that guy's doing it. Every time I see Robert Carlock and Dennis McNicholas. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> Two writers, though. <laughs> because they had what what's the worst of all worlds. When you get a sketch on, you you they have to produce your sketch. So they had, in my case, they had to go through and run down, Rob, poor Robert Carlock had to run down a million clips for a Sports Center sketch. Half of the things they couldn't get the rights to. It was a lot of work. And so you're not only as the writer of, uh, as a Saturday Night Live writer, you're not getting your sketch on, but you got to produce this asshole sketch. And we went to the NBA, so we bought them shit. You know, we, we kept, uh, we were, we were doing our best to understand that just by being there, we were being annoying to them, but that we understood and tried to just be, not be, not be dicks about it, I guess. And, and we also said to Lorne, I mean, Ray did, don't put our sketches on because Lorne wants to support the host and the host kind of has a lot of say. I didn't realize that till I got there, but the host, you know, he was ready to kind of put on, we had written three sketches and two of them did all right. And one of them kind of bombed and Ray said, don't put that, don't put them on unless they actually are going to do well. You know, you're talking about in dress rehearsal. Yeah. And even after the table. You know, yeah. after the table when they're setting up the the, the rundown. The table whatever. read is where you sit around with like fifty writers around the table with Lauren at the head. The world's you, worst table read. And you one. read uh, for like two, three hours with the host all these sketches, and it's uh, it's it's very, very, very hard to it, do well in that room. You know, I don't remember any of them doing well, and um, I just thought when I was done, well, I'm not sure. I'm, I really can't tell what's going to go on, but. Um, but yeah, it was um, it was a great. It turned out to be a great experience, and one of my greatest memories is sitting inside, sneaking inside for the dress rehearsal and watching the sketch kill, and just being like, and, and living in New York City, and I had never worked for Saturday Night Live, and I never would, but it was that's a thrill that you you know grow up thinking about. And then being named one of the fifty greatest SNL sketches of all time by Rolling I have Stone. I made that a catchphrase. That's the thing I can always take to my grave is I created sweet sassy molassy. <laughs> which is the thing he says in the sketch over and over. Uh, well, that can be arranged. The, uh, tombstone. <laughs> that could be on my tombstone. So talk about, so that was the moment where you wanted to prove yourself. You're going in, you know, Phil Rosenthal is there. And in your mind, you don't have to say it, but I would think that when you went to Saturday Night Live, your main goal 
wasn't just to do a great sketch on SNL or write some great stuff. Your main goal was to that Phil Rosenthal would look at you and say, I have to hire this guy. You know, I actually didn't have that. I certainly wanted to write for that show. But I, at that time, was doing pretty well stand-up-wise, finally. <laughs> it had really taken most of my career to find a voice. And alternative comedy kind of saved my saved my act because it shook it up and I was able to do some creative things. And so I was kind of torn because I was really happy in New York. And uh, so I wasn't really looking for a job there, but it did work out that way that he, uh, you know, that they had an opening and uh, there was an opening on Spin City at the same time. I had to choose whether to live in New York or whether to move to L.A. And, you know, luckily, I I mean, Spin City was a, was a great show, too. But Because you wrote that one episode for Bill Lawrence, who's an amazing showrunner. Yeah. Um, and you have Phil Rosenthal and Ray and you had to choose between both. And when you're choosing as a writer... Uh, it's the greatest feeling in the world because two entities want you. What you realize early on, though, is that you think that because two entities want you, it means that there's going to be more money for you. <laughs> but in the beginning, that's not how it works. No. And and it's called a baby writer position, which at the time that Mike went in was probably around $3,000 a week, which is a lot of money for anybody listening but for writers of what they normally get on sitcoms, it's not a lot of money. No. Um, but for him, it was a, obviously the it most money he'd ever seen in his life. <laughs> and so here he's offered both. He chooses Ray's show and I you get a, in. Now, this is the yeah. most amazing thing that we're going to talk about here. And this is what I love talking about. In every instance so far, you're the guy who comes in and, like, for instance, Ray saw hundreds of comedians hundreds and hundreds of comedians he chose one comedian to help him write his book you true he saw hundreds of comedians he chose one comedian to come to saturday Night live and help him write the sketches you so then Ray gets a show and he has an opportunity to bring somebody on. He's seen hundreds of comedians. And yes, there was one guy on. I always can never pronounce his name <laughs> because he changed it uh, one time yeah. to, and it, he found out it was a porn star's name and then he had to change it back. <laughs> How do you pronounce his last name? Caltabiano. Tom Caltabiano was there, but there was no one else there. And you get that gig as well. And so true to form like late night at the comedy cellar you could only name one person during your time who <laughs> became a household name or got on a television series and hundreds didn't so you were always doing something to put you in a position to win so how do you think that you were able to do that and then you get the show and this is something else that's incredible when you get to the show how many writers are there? 10, 11, something like that. 10 or 11 writers. There, yes. Okay. And you are a baby writer. Yes. And how many of those 10 or 11 writers, plus all the other writers that came in and out during the time you were there, became an executive producer of the show? Well, Raymond was a very stable uh, bunch of writers and some of them had been there since the beginning you know you know some of them Lou Schneider of course Steve Scrovan of course um, um, 
And so by the end, there were a few, you know, how more many, than a few how many, executive producers. How many, Mike? Oh, God, at the end? Out of all the writers, how many writers would you say came and went and, oh. or, or were stayed or went during your time? If you had to guess how many total. Not, I don't know. But 25? No, 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 no. That's what I'm saying. Raymond is, is an exception to what you're saying is completely true about 99% of all shows. So you're saying that some of the moment you got there... There were only like 10 writers who stayed the whole time. Nobody left. Nobody was fired. Nobody. Six or five or six who were there for all nine years. Got which it. is, you know. And those six happened. became executive producers. Yes. And I also became one. And uh, there were certainly some people in and out, you know, um, but it was more on the order of one or two per season here and there. Sometimes we didn't have any changes between seasons. Um, it was a great job. And Phil is an amazing showrunner and the hours were amazing because he's an amazing showrunner. And so no one wanted to leave and we were doing a great show and we loved it. You know, I didn't even want to do stand up again, which I thought I would want to do because it was such fun to write the show. I didn't have that hole in my life. You know, I thought I would, but I didn't. Started making good money and it was all great. And what's odd is that, you know, again, not to keep going, beating a dead horse there, a lot of writers worked on the show not as many as normal but a lot of worked on the show ray had a relationship with a lot of people he loved all these writers but then he leaves the show and um i'm going to jump past louis for a second mm-hmm. and he decides he wants to create another show or he wants to work on another show yes men of a certain age well, that um, and uh, yeah. how is it that you are the guy that he does that with, and he doesn't do it with anybody else? Well, that was truly a you know a combined effort where it came out of both of us. Um, after waiting for Lucky Louie to be picked up, I was waiting for that. He was about an, a year and a half removed from Raymond, and we were both in a kind of a melancholy. <laughs> Mood. He just said, you know, let's clearly, clearly you both needed uh, to make some money. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that was the thing is that he, we started getting together just like, you know, let's write, you know, let's write a movie. Let's just, you know, whatever. We'll figure it out. You know, it was just getting together with no plan. Um, and immediately we started just shooting the shit and we were both in the same place, mid forties, uh, late forties in his case. Um, he was really like, is it over? Am I done? And as successful as he had become, obviously, you don't, you can't take that away. He was looking at his life like, am I, I'm at the top of the hill and now I, I don't know, how can I top that? How is anything ever going to be that good again? And these are the normal feelings you have when you're, you hit the, you're between your 40s and your 50s. I was having them too. You know, Lucky Louie was, was great, but I, I, Raymond had come and went. I, I, you know, I didn't know what was ahead. We both were just sitting there like, yes, we've been very, very fortunate. In his case, very, 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 very fortunate. Great, great lives. Can't complain. But is it over? Is it done? And we started to just have all these conversations, realizing that people this age have those same conversations no matter what your job is. You have that mentality when you hit that age. And, and that just, those conversations became that show. We came up with characters, um, a lot of talk about his character because he didn't want to do Raymond again. And we wanted to make sure it was somebody that he 
wouldn't be viewed as like, oh my God, look at Ray trying to uh, do something crazy different. But also it had to be much different. Now, when you're out pitching the show, I mean, when you're out pitching a show with Ray, I mean, obviously every network president is in the room. Yes. And and they're, they can buy in a second. They can tell you in the room, we want to do this show. Whereas normally when you, most people are pitching, it's like, uh, we'll get back to you in a few weeks or whatever. Right. Let us talk about it. <laughs> Normally you're in the room with a network president. It's like, we're not going to talk about it. We want to do this or we don't. They'll, they'll, when, when they tell you, let us talk about it, that means they're not going to do it. Yes. So you pitch all over the place. Well, the truth is we didn't because what happened was, first of all, none of what we did would have gotten anywhere without Ray. If I had written a show about three guys turning 50 and gone into any room and said, my show is about three guys who are exiting the demo. <laughs> I mean, it's it's literally the exactly rate the ratings demo the ratings demo is what Mike's talking yes. about, which is normally I believe thirty two to forty nine or something Seven, like that eighteen to forty nine you know and twenty five to fifty four depending on what twenty five to 50, okay I'm sorry but but you know you're literally like let me make a show about all the people that you want to forget about because you know, <laughs> advertisers if Ray Romano doesn't want to do that then I'm not going to even get it close to the thing. We started, you know, fucking around with it and making a making a thing in this weird foul in this weird period that we both weren't doing anything. Lucky Louie ended up not getting picked up. Suddenly, I was getting all this just you know interest from people who wanted to do a development deal with me, but for network stuff and for sitcoms, which is incredible. Like just so you know, great showrunners like Mike are like football coaches. It doesn't matter if you have a bad season. Yes. After you get fired or after it doesn't work out, there's people waiting in line to hire you. I, my greatest fear turned out to be completely unfounded. You know, I'm very proud of Lucky Louie, as is Louie. Um, it wasn't everybody's cup of tea, and that's a whole other podcast. But <laughs> um, I was fearful that because it got canceled... Um, and had been, it had been pretty hyped, and so that it, the fact that it wasn't a success, that didn't go on to a second season... I thought that would hurt me. And normally, and it hurt Louis, but well, it didn't, but it hurt Louis in the sense that no one gave him the keys to the kingdom until about five years later. But yes. just because that show was a show where it was groundbreaking because it was the first sitcom for HBO. But also, Louis is like a, an incredible, he has the vision of like, he's like a feature film director of the most respected Absolutely, kind. absolutely. He knows when he's writing exactly who he wants, and he doesn't give a shit if who he's writing for is a guy that is incapable of being socially uh, <laughs> acceptable on a set, is incapable of creating any kind of conversation with anybody, or has any... It didn't matter if these characters were a half step step behind socially, if they had problems, if they were addicts, if he wrote for them and he believed in them, they would get the gig. So you had people on the show, they were actors on the show that were like, except for his wife. Right. They were all people in the business that never auditioned for anything. Yep. So you had Jim Norton, Jerry Minor, Rick Shapiro. Um, I'm going blank. I'm sorry. On um, uh, well, Mike Haggerty was a fairly established actor, but um, uh, sorry, who did is uh, um, Laura Keitlinger. Laura Keitlinger. Um, yeah. So, so you had all these people that were on the show that were like, and and they weren't. They never really were. They weren't getting gigs. 
they, Laura, were, you know. they weren't working. They were great people, but they weren't working because the audition process is so brutal that you they just weren't great at that process, in my opinion. But they were great when somebody gave them the confidence of saying, you're my person. Mm-hmm. And when you do something like that as an actor and you surround yourself with people who are what I would like to say in your capacity, which Louis, again, was another person who had never really been given the opportunity to book acting jobs. He just, whenever he auditioned, or which was rare because he didn't like to audition that much, he'd go in and, and, and it wasn't happening. He wasn't right. getting the gigs, just like all those people that he hired. So here, as opposed to something like Ray's show, Everybody Loves Raymond or Seinfeld, Ray and Jerry, the networks forced them to surround themselves with established, rock-solid actors who had done hundreds and hundreds of episodes of television. Right. Louis made the decision that he was going to surround himself with people who were at his level as an actor in terms of booking jobs, <laughs> right. except for his wife Right. And Mike Haggerty. Right. That's, yes. And to me, that was the fatal flaw of the show because you need to have people around you, even if they do a great job, these people, and they did. And I think Rick and, and Jerry yeah. and Norton were great. But the point is, is like you need the foundation that's strong to carry you through the creative process in my mind <laughs> and to be able to come through in a way that people have that confidence. It's very rare. Yes, there's examples of workaholics and things like that or always yeah. sunny where things work. But the odds are so far against you. And especially on a place like HBO where HBO is like the four seasons of acting <laughs> right it's like you got there there's people that are fifth leads on shows on the wire who are like some of the greatest actors of our generation yes and so you look at shows that are on television now with mcconaughey and and jude law these are like you know so even if rick shapiro and norton or jerry minor were sitting here with us they wouldn't find that insulting what i'm saying it's just the fact that it's like you'd look at the outliers book. You need your 10,000 hours to really have something. You know, I, I think you're right. And at the same time for this particular show, I think you're right in terms of what the, what would have made that show a much bigger hit. <laughs> um, where I think HBO and Louie didn't see eye to eye. And the reason it didn't continue you know, I think it would continue today. What happened back then was HBO was still Sunday night only, basically. That's when we trot out our incredibly gold-plated entertainment that you're going to... The Sopranos, and I mean, that had just ended at, or was about to end. Sex in the City, you know, Entourage. We were on after Entourage. Lucky Louie after Entourage is like a punch in the face, stylistically. You know, this little dirty video sitcom with like all these actors who are stand-ups. <laughs> and and Louie, you know, very foul uh, show. You know, not not that it's that, that was the end game, but like... I it was think... the crying game in some episodes. <laughs> uh, that's, that's another podcast. Um, <laughs> I think if they had said to Louis C.K. instead of 
I think if they had promoted the show in this way, instead of, oh my God, it's HBO's first sitcom. It's going to kick you, kick your balls off. It's going to be so amazing because we're HBO and here's our sitcom, the only one we've ever done. It came with so much baggage. Louis is very idiosyncratic. Louis does what Louis does. He's brilliant, you know, obviously one of the most brilliant stand-ups out there. He's a brilliant writer. He does his thing. Obviously, that's what he's doing now, and it's brilliant. And that's with that right. sitcom, his goals were not to make, you know, a sort of, I don't know how to say it, a, like a down the line. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. He had his goals. He wanted to make it extremely... Uh, uh, you know, sparse looking spare with the, like a honeymooners approach, uh, but still shot on video because that was sort of a throw, a, a, a Roseanne type of uh, note that he wanted to add in there. It, it came out really, it, you know, very strange. And it did come out, but I, I will say this. I Look, Louis C.K., for those of you who listen to this podcast, you know, was the first management client I ever had in my entire life. And I love uh, Louis C.K. And I, I mean, he, we talked about the Boston Comedy Club. He was the first comedian on stage. He helped me set it all up. Uh, when he was 18, he was touring with Seinfeld. Yeah. He was always a special guy. He was the first guy I knew who had one of those Mac computers that was that square <laughs> beige thing with the mouse that won the wire. Right. He was always creating. He was always doing things the way he wanted to do them. And, um, and I was always so blown away by him. And even when I watched Lucky Louie and I, I watched that first uh, episode and I thought to myself, and you know, you have thoughts when you watch things and it's not a bad thing. If you're sitting again on that couch alone and you're watching something, you, you can't, you, you, whatever goes in, whatever pops in your head is what pops in your head. And it's not an insult. It's not anything. And I just thought to myself, uh, you know, because I remember watching the Entourage episode and then coming into that stylistically, <laughs> and I thought to myself, I know Louis wanted it this way. Right. But like my first show that I ever worked on, Action on Fox, it was an amazing show, but it had to follow Family Guy. Right. And tonally, following Family Guy, an animated thing, it just wasn't worth And I think that's a, a big thing as well and it, it and and I'm yes. going to go back and and correct myself about something I do believe that if it were in the right place and sitting amongst the kind of shows that were the right tone or for it it would never have mattered about Jerry Minor or Jim Norton or Rick Shapiro not being like uh the type of actors like Edie Falco or James Gandolfini or Jeremy Piven. Right. That wouldn't have made any difference because I thought they were all funny and great and Louis directed them well. And put, But I, I, I think you're right about that. And I, I is, that, is that you need that thing that America just sees something. It's like anything. It's like you're, you don't want to, you're not going to be like going to a beautiful restaurant and having filet mignon and then go to McDonald's and have the fucking, uh, you know. Right. The French fries. It's like it wouldn't. You, no one would ever do that. Or, or you're not. And it's not that the Louis show was the French fries. I'm just saying because McDonald's has some of the best French fries. In the world. <laughs> but the, but the point being is yeah. that it's just I love the show and I watched every fucking episode of that show, and uh, and 
but I realized as I was watching, I didn't see how it was going to work there. And I wasn't big on looking at the ratings back there or anything like that. Which were pretty good. And so when it was canceled, <laughs> it to me, I thought to myself, oh my God, this is, this is, this is bad. And I thought that way for you as well, because I don't ever remember a show ever being canceled on HBO. It was like right. a factory of greatness. Yes. It was a factory of things that never went away until they wanted them to go away. And right. so I thought, this is going to be a hard one to recover from. And it's going to be a hard thing for Louie or Mike to ever get the keys to the kingdom again. But I thought it would be less hard for you because you are a component you are a hireable component to be malleable right. with any situation whether you create your own show or not you're a network friendly guy louis ck is a genius who is not a network friendly guy it's like you do it my way or i don't do it right. for his fx show it's yeah. legendary how it went about that he went there he pitched he pitched the comedy central as well they passed because they have executives get get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to make notes yeah yeah to write right. up hey you should do things this way louis hey we don't really like the way that character is going yeah really go fuck yourself <laughs> at fx with john landgraf and um and the team that he surrounded himself there they said to him, okay, you do whatever the fuck you want, but we're only giving you $325,000 a show. If you want to do it in New York City, that's your business. We're giving you this. Now, $325,000 might sound like a lot to the people in the audience here, but that is like literally like probably 20% of what a sitcom costs to produce here in Los Angeles. Ray's show, without his salary and all the cast members, I can guarantee you at the end, it could have been $3 million an episode. And so he was being asked to do something for 10%, but the, the, the caveat was you can do it any way you want. There's no one going to be giving you any notes. There's nothing... You can do whatever. And so going back to the comedy cellar, you go to the comedy cellar and see Louis C.K. in the Olive Tree Cafe right, right. in a booth on his computer. And you think, oh, he's just checking his emails. This is whatever. Hey, what are you doing? Uh, I'm editing my show. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're what? Yeah, I'm editing my show. Here, I'm, yep. here's the graphics. I'm doing this here. I'm putting this in. I'm yep. like, you do. Yeah, I do it all right here on the thing. Yep. And, and, and so I don't. I know what the deal is and I know what you're talking about, but you're a guy who never asks for a hundred percent control. That's why you're always going to get the opportunity to have another job and get another job because you're talent friendly and you're network friendly. Louis CK is going to get a certain number of gigs to do. And if one of them is successful, then he's going to continue and go again. It's like Larry David and Curb. Do you think there was a network executive giving him a note? Do you think John Stewart ever gets a note right, anymore right. from Comedy Central after winning 11 Emmy Awards in 13 years? <laughs> yeah, I think he's probably free and clear of the notes. Um, yeah, it's the, 
you know, Louie found exactly the perfect thing and they had a good experience with uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which was a, sort of a similar, here's a little bit of money and it worked out very well for them. That's kind of their thing over there, which is great. And um, I, you know, Louie found his calling because that show is, you know, but men, and But men of a certain age, you created with Ray, you get it on the air. And this is something that is, is, is always shocking to me. Uh, and it's one, it's an anomaly in our business. And when Mike sat down here, he, he you know, and he, he told me on an email as well, because I, I interviewed Steve <laughs> Coonan, who's one of the uh, head guys at uh, TBS and TNT. And he said, you know, did you ask him why you didn't pick up our show? <laughs> And, joking. I'm joking. And this is one of the things. <laughs> this is one of the things that's so crazy about our business sometimes. And I've spoken about it in sports as well. You know, occasionally, you know, there's a guy like Wes Welker, who's the best guy out there. Everything's going great. You're on a great team, has money, and all of a sudden they just say, you know what? I know you have uh, 30 more catches than everybody else in the league, but we're just going to offer you half of what we paid you last year. <laughs> And we don't really care if you're around or not, except the <laughs> offer fine. If you don't, you don't. And you have to realize that it's not going to happen there. And you don't know why you can't figure out why the only thing you can figure out is that, you know, you're always going to work after if you do great work. And this show was a critically acclaimed show. Um, it won, uh, the Academy Award, the Academy Honors Award. I'm sorry. Yeah. The Academy Honors Award, the Peabody Award. <clears throat> so tell me in your mind and Ray's mind after doing such a great show that was so well produced, looked great, well acted, mm -hmm. the ratings were not spectacular but they certainly were not anywhere near average or low <laughs> well it in depends, your yeah. in your mind and ray's mind what happened well <laughs> it started at hbo we developed it for hbo that's what happened when i was getting offers after lucky louie is hbo heard we were working on this and swooped in and chris albrecht i had a deal in five minutes it was amazing yeah, who was on the podcast is an amazing guy. Yes. And he's yes. now the president of stars. Is, yes. And uh, so we got to work on this instead of me having to work on some sitcom or, you know, some other thing that was not mine. HBO gave me money. <laughs> they gave you money. And, and just so our audience knows, again, we talk about relationships and how important relationships are in the business and how not to be an asshole and be a great person and keep up relationships. You look at Mike Royce's career, it's all about relationships. Bill Lawrence, he writes a script, he gets offered Spin City. Uh, Louis C.K., he, I'm sure he spent many nights working at the Comedy Cellar and many uh, nights working comedy with Louis. Louis had the confidence in him. Louis didn't pick anybody else. He picked you. He liked you. He wanted you. Ray, working with Ray at Princeton together, whatever. Right. Chris Albrecht, a lot of people don't know this, ran HBO Independent Productions, a studio that produced television. They were the production company with Letterman's Worldwide Pants that, that produced Everybody Loves Raymond. Lo and behold, who wants to be in business with Ray and Mike Royce again? Yes. Chris Albrecht, relationships. That's exactly right. And uh, he, you know, they heard, heard we were working on this through Rory Rosegarden, Ray's manager. Who is a, an amazing manager and one of the greatest managers that is ever 
ever been in the business and will ever be in the business. Yes. And, and, uh, we suddenly, I had a deal, not even Ray, I had a deal at HBO to work basically to work on this thing with Ray. And we did it, you know, we developed it for a year and they eventually passed on it. Partly, I think, because that was when Chris Albrecht left. We had, a, we got a little caught in the, I think the transition also partly because I think what we developed, Ray and I kept saying to each other, really for HBO? Like it didn't feel, it felt uh, different, but it didn't feel envelope pushing in in the way that HBO shows are. We were very content to take uh, advantage of the freedom that HBO would offer and they were a great place to develop, but they eventually passed. And then TNT swooped in and uh, said, "We, you know, we like it. We'll take it." And the, that was Michael he, Wright and the- Michael Wright. And um, I didn't really meet Steve until later, but um, but yeah, Michael Wright, Lila McCarthy was there. Brent and Michael Wright, has, you know, always uh, says this thing that I always quote, and uh, is that uh, my philosophy with talent is: you hire great artists, and you get the fuck out of the way. <laughs> well, I have to say, they did. Uh, that was a great, great place to work. They were extremely behind us. They only, they gave us very, I I don't, when I say they gave us minimal notes, it's not like they're like afraid to give us notes or they just, they were behind our vision of it. Even though I think they, it wasn't the vision they necessarily wanted for the show. They, you know, I think they expected something lighter. Um, We had a little bit of trouble getting picked up you know, wasn't an automatic deal, even though Ray was involved, because what, what came out was a true dramedy. It was a drama with some comedy in it, but it wasn't what the premise may have suggested to some people. Three guys approaching 50, maybe sowing some wild oats and it being kind of a romp of some sort. I think that's what everybody expected from Ray. I think that's part of the reason why the show ended up not continuing on TNT is it started with giant ratings. People came to it expecting a comedy. We had to like sort of flush out all the people who expected a comedy and, and, and lure people who liked what we were doing. That took some time and, uh, we didn't necessarily get there by the end of the second season. You know, I always, to me, we were sort of TNT was fantastic because they supported us and they, they wanted to put, it, it didn't really fit, I think, their brand, but they were 100% game. And I think we ended up being kind of an indie movie on a blockbuster channel, you know? And again, one of the toughest things that you realize in anything um, in the entertainment business, especially on television, is it's very rare when America tunes into a show and in droves and the next week they don't tune in as much for it to come back. It's almost like, you know, you go to a restaurant and you expect a certain quality of service or a level of food or whatever it is, and you don't get it. You don't go back. You just don't go back. And if it's acceptable to you and you like it, you do go back. And it's the same with television shows. And like Mike said, they were expecting something from Ray's brand. Ray's brand was holy shit funny not holy shit comedy and drama (laughs) and it's the same when 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 jim carrey or like one of adam sandler's to me one of the greatest things he's ever done that i i just can't speak about it enough is punch drunk love just 
or Ben Stiller, Permanent Midnight, mm-hmm. or Richard Lewis, and I'm escaping me, the movie he did where he played an alcoholic. Yes, I can't remember the name. I know what you're talking about, though. Yes. Or Jim Carrey, uh, Eternal, um, Eternal Sunshine, Sunshine yeah. of the Spotless Mind. These performances are, if you haven't seen these movies, run to Netflix and find them. Unbelievable movies. But they went against the brand and people didn't come and the word of mouth didn't come past that over and over again because it wasn't what they wanted to see from that artist, even though the artist wanted to portray that and bring it out there. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that you have to look at. Yeah. I I, I think that if we had been on a pay cable channel without advertisers, it would have helped a great deal with that particular show. Um, pacing wise and also the way they could have promoted it. You know, I think that it could have been promoted as a different thing. Whereas TNT, rightly so wanted to promote it as well, raise back on television, you know, and here are these other guys who are, you know, famous as well. Uh, uh, Scott Bakula and Andre Brower. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the ads sort of trended a little towards more the comedic sensibility and, um, you can, you know, our, our critical, uh, the reviews were fantastic and we were doing exactly the show we wanted to do. And we got, and we had good ratings to the end, by the end of the first season, we kind of got a little screwed schedule wise. The second season, they split us up into two different parts. It was already a short season, um, 12 episodes. They split into six a piece. Nobody could find us, you know, we were also, we were on after it's hard to complain. We were on after a show that the closer for the first six, that gets very big ratings. But as you say, audience flow there is just, that's one show and we were a complete other show. And so if you're talking about pay cable, you have a show like girls or enlightened even, which got a couple seasons. It doesn't really matter Numbers matter, but they matter way less. And demos don't matter on the pay cable. You know, they don't care who's watching as long as they're paying to to watch it. For us, for a very leisure, not leisurely, but a, a show with no gunfire, no, uh, you know, killings, no uh, emergencies. It was it was a slice of life. Uh, you know, we're, we think very, you know, we worked very hard on, on the drama of it and, and these the small stories of these guys. And telling what we thought were really relatable stories that that the people who were fans are super fans. But I, you know, I I watched one of our episodes once in a hotel. I didn't, I wasn't home. And um, the commercials, I mean, it was a train wreck because we don't have act breaks that are, oh my God, I got to see what happens after that commercial. And I could just see people, I saw my show through the eyes of the viewer, the TNT viewer. Um, which was just like, well, some stuff happens, then there's a bunch of commercials and some more stuff happens. And then there's a bunch of commercials, never a big, holy shit at the end of the act break. And I got this lesson, um, extremely, um, clearly because I was watching my show with my wife, who was a fan of me, I think, and (laughs) the show I know. And watching the show and she's like, oh my God, the fucking commercials. Oh my God, I can't take it. Just, you know, 
and she's falling asleep, you know, she's falling asleep because we're in bed in a hotel watching the, um, and, oh yeah, it's driving me crazy. So then a show ends. I go over on the computer. She stays in bed and the next show comes on CSI, New York. Never saw an episode of my life. Neither did she. I'm on the computer for a long time. I, she is the person who falls asleep instantly. Uh, when, a, when something's on that she doesn't like instantly, she, I look over, it's near the end. It's an hour's past. I look over, she's like this with CSI New York. Riveted. Yes. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Why are you? And she goes, well, I, I want to find out what happens, you know? And that's what a procedural is. That's what that network does well with. And that's what can survive commercials is that kind of programming. I mean, that is what happens in on every network now is you have to find something that can survive the commercials, especially, you know, to get a live number uh, that does any business in this day, day and age of the DVRs, you need scandal. You need something that's, that's, as you say, holy shit, every five minutes. So speaking of getting a live number, the latest thing you're working on, <laughs> yeah, enlisted. Nice segue. <laughs> yeah, I love the way you say you You know, people say the critically acclaimed enlisted. You know, whenever you hear critically acclaimed, what does that mean to you? Nobody's watching. <laughs> so this is what's odd about Fox now uh, and Kevin Riley. I, I, you know, I can't even speak hi more highly as highly as I possibly could about Kevin Riley, the president of uh, entertainment at Fox, just an incredible man and executive. And uh, I, I, I just, he's just amazing. And there are things. And when I do have him here sitting next to me, which he will be here uh, soon, hopefully uh, if I could ever get that date out of him. But um, there's two shows that are on the air that I just, for the life of me, uh, one doing really well, yours maybe not doing as well as it could be doing. And I think about, and I'm going to go a little toe to toe with you here. Yes. I'm a fan of the originality of a concept. That means something to me right. as an audience member. I'm only one guy. So I don't matter, but to me, that means something to me. And if I see shows that have a concept that I feel like I've seen more than one time, I just automatically am like, I don't, I don't want, I don't want it. I don't want to, I don't want to go. I don't even want to turn it on. Right. And there's two shows on the air. One that's successful where the audience is saying, Hey, Barry, you're wrong. We as an audience don't care, which is Brooklyn 99. Yes. Which is a genre of a show that we've seen a shitload of times. Not, you know, not recently, but yes, I know. It's, you know what it's I'm a familiar saying. It's a setup, very familiar yes. setup in film and television. <laughs> yes. And the military situation in comedy has been done over and over again throughout time very successful many times in movies hardly ever successful in television maybe mikhail's navy or something not like that not for a long time not for and a not long many time. attempts in a long time not many attempts let me tell you but, where, but that's not true yeah, there right. wasn't a attempt recently but anyways but but yeah. the but so and then i look at mike royce and i'm sitting across from mike royce <laughs> right a guy who all throughout his career 
has worked on shows that, in my humble opinion, have a very, very original point of view and a very original concept. And even Ray, which you could maybe compare certain shows to in a way, but I can't really remember a show before Ray that had that real family dynamic of the of the mother and father living down the street and I if think, i can remember yeah. it i'm losing sight of it but it wasn't done that often where ray separated himself from the pack with phil was family shows before that by and large had been fairly cheesy i think you could say they're they're they do well roseanne being the exception but there was um and it was Cosby a cheesy factor. Yes, yes. So, the, so there you go. Maybe it's just the exceptions that prove, prove the rule. Most of the time, there, there's sort of a f- fluffy family element um, happening. And Ray's, I think Ray and Phil managed to make a smart family show where there was none at that time. That's true. And then you know you did Louie and you wrote for Spin City an episode and you you know why did you decide now again? Showrunners get paid a lot of money, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) of the jury. (coughs) Just to let you know out there, and I'm not saying that Mike makes this or he doesn't make this, but if you're an executive producer on a show, I mean, the lowest amount of money I've ever heard any executive producer making on a show as a showrunner is like fifteen to $20,000 a week on a show. And so when you get offered a gig to showrun a gig... It's like, you know, it's 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 showtime. It's it's the 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 money is there, and you're like, oh well, we can put this addition on. We can build a pool right. in the backyard, right. whatever. And if you haven't you done anything in a while that you really necessarily are, you're pitching every year, and you've got your ideas, and you're going out, and you might be getting deals, but it's not getting on the air. And then you're in a position where you can get on the air. Sometimes, in my humble opinion, again because this show is critically acclaimed. But I don't think the genre is critically acclaimed. Sometimes you take gigs for the respect. Sometimes you take gigs for the cash. When I heard you were doing this show, it was like literally watching a Sesame Street episode where they sing the song, one of these things is not like I the understand. other. Yes. So please tell me. My wife had the same opinion. What um, is going on and why is this the case that you're doing this show? Here's the thing. Um, I'm. It started as an obligation. In other words, I have a deal at 20th. I have to work on something. I had just finished running 1600 Pen, which was also because I had a pilot before that that didn't go. So now I'm on a deal. I got to work on something. They had me run that show. And just so the audience knows, when when an artist who's in front of the camera or a showrunner behind the camera gets a deal and their thing doesn't go, they normally the network can come to them and say, listen, you have to do this. Now, you can pass on the first one they they offer you. They offer you another one. I believe you can pass on that one. But if you pass on a third one they offer you, you got to give some of the money back. <laughs> right. That's There's, the way the deals work. I've never come close to something like that <laughs> and never will. Um, but no, they, they gave me a few things. And this was... So I read this one. The premise... As you say, sounded like, why would I? It doesn't sound like me. 
the guy, Kevin Beagle, who wrote it and created it, wrote a script that was, I really appreciated where he was going with it. It started as Stripes and it ended up as MASH. And that's just using broad strokes. But there was a lot of heart. And one thing that I have discovered about myself throughout my running career now is, I guess it's my brand. It's what I like to do. I like to do things with heart and emotion in them. You know, I like comedies. I've always been a fan of those. And that's just what I naturally write. I admire things like 30 Rock, which are just joke, 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 amazing, uh, amazing tour de forces of just pure comedy. I'm, I'm not as good at that as I am at writing relatable things and, and things with emotion in them that uh, add to the comedy. This guy was coming from an amazing, sincere place and you could see it in the script. And so I was like, yeah, I'll, I mean, this is, you know, I, 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 I'd like to work with this guy. So I got to work, uh, uh, we worked together on the pilot. We, we rewrote the pilot together. We shot the pilot together. We were partners now, you know, we did, I mean. When you rewrite a pilot just for our audience, cause this is an interesting thing, just so you know, when you write a script and you register with the writer's guild, you are the official creator of the show. If you write it with somebody else, both of you are the official creators of the show. If somebody gives you an outline of the story of the show but does not write the show, they are a creator on the show. Tell our audience what happens when a guy has written an existing script, has submitted it to the Writers Guild, and then you go with him and then you rewrite, do a page one rewrite with him together. Do you get to be the creator of the show or does the writer's guild say, nah, it's not changed enough? In this case, we, you know, certainly it wasn't a page one and and we rewrote it together. We did it separately and I would give him pages and, you know, everything when I came on board was this is, I said to him, this is your show. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not here to take over the show. You know, I'm here to support your vision and do what I think can complement it. So, but in this case, he's the creator of the show. He had written a script. The script had gotten picked up already by, by Kevin Riley. Um, it, you know, it was created, but he had written the first and many, many drafts up until that point. Um, so I was just sort of, you know, value added. I certainly had a big hand in, in, uh, in shaping it and, and then all the producing of it and the shooting and being on stage and all that stuff. Um, so just to fast forward to sort of, the cognitive dissonance of why I'm working on what you may see as Mikhail's Navy 2014. (laughs) Um, With heart. With heart. What I think screwed us in terms of attracting people to the show, and I just mean like first impressions are really, really hard to change. I, when you see a 10 second ad for a comedy, it may be the only time you see it and it's going to make you go, nah, I don't think so. Or, yeah, that looks kind of funny. And it's an art form making a promo like that. It's a it's it's done usually more badly than it is well. It's also, I've found in my experience, much easier for dramas. And what Mike's alluding to is that every network, there are departments whose sole job are to cut mini trailers, like film trailers that can be as short as 10 seconds as long as uh, 30 seconds, sometimes networks who are really generous, a (laughs) minute, but very rare. But normally they're between 10 and 15 seconds long. 
And so, and you have to get across what the show is in those times. And a lot of times, you, the creators don't have any control over the promo department. They don't even get to see them beforehand. You can't get it written into your contract that you get to be a part of creating those promos. And you're at the mercy of the network. Yes, and they're doing their best. I think a lot of times, sometimes what happens is, the thing that gets the thing sold is the thing that screws you later. And I just mean the familiar concept that everyone in the room's like, oh my God, a new Stripes. That sounds amazing. Like we haven't seen, you know, Stripes is 30 years old. Let's see that on TV. There hasn't been anything like that on television. <clears throat> you know, that, that, and, and yet it's a concept that people get. It's a genre they haven't seen in a long time, you know. Um, we made a pilot with some very Stripesy moments. If you see... You know, the majority of the 10 second promos for that show, when we premiered, the majority of the clips that people saw were like a fat guy being pushed up a wall, um, essentially stripes, you know, light. And I think that they were in their minds, they were right to do that because this is the familiar concept that's going to in a perfect world. This is what's going to attract people. Oh, I like stripes. I want to see that. I think what ended up happening is it reduced the show down to what was essentially a minute of the most broad, you know, it's not the show. The show isn't, isn't that it's a little bit of that with a whole bunch of other things. It's really about these three brothers, also this misfit platoon, but it's about a whole part of the army that no one knows anything about. And it has a lot of emotion in it and, and it has, um, it, it's way more character based than the wacky hijinks that you saw in the 10 second promo. And I think people rightly made a lot of judgments of like, yeah, I don't, that looks like lame stripes. I'm not going to watch that. Couple that with the fact that we launched on a Friday at nine 30 after a show, our lead in was a point eight and the lead ins basically just went down after that. Um, we, we really had no shot and it makes me mad because we deserve a shot. Anybody who actually has seen the episodes, 90% of the people, you know, you see the critics, 90% of people who actually see the show, see the quality, see how hard we work, see that it's not just a fat guy on a wall, uh, and, and lame stripes. And what about your biggest critic? What does she say? My wife or your wife or Dana Walden, <laughs> Dana Walden being one of the co-chairmen and presidents of the 20th Century Fox. My wife really, I can't remember if I had to read the script. I think I did. And I think she was like, I don't know why you're doing this. You know, I don't get it. It doesn't seem like you. Now she's, you know, the, the biggest fan of the show. She can't believe how good she loves it. And she's now, you know, she gets mad for me. Like, why don't they give you a better time slot? You know? And it's been a little hard to take because pretty much every other show on Fox this season has gotten some kind of shot. And we got very clearly defined no shot. I don't think it was meant out of malice. I don't think it was that they wanted something to die over there. I think there were a lot of things about our lead-in that, that happened because of reasons that were out of our control. But things take on a life of their own. And we ended up in this spot that didn't get us any traction. Now what we have hope, our last final hope, um, but still hope, they embargoed our last four episodes on purpose. They're four of our strongest ones um, because it wasn't working on Friday. And they're looking for a place to put it before the upfronts that somebody can see it and just get it some kind of sampling so that we just we haven't had any opportunity to get a real number. You know, 
normally what you're complaining about with a with a new show is they put us behind X great hit and then took us away after three weeks. You know, they they move you too soon. We never even got the big hit to begin with. We got immediately put behind something that wasn't doing well to begin with. And you can't launch that way. There's just no way, you know, that, you know, so. If the show doesn't get picked up, are you going to be anxious about whether anybody's going to hire you again? Or are you going to know that your pattern is that everyone wants to work with you? This is, I, I don't know what other, other people, I, I, I know some people are interested. I don't, I'm not a fearful like I was after Lucky Louie because now what I've learned, first of all, there's two principles at work. Let's pretend that Lucky Louie was a piece of shit. <laughs> Just pretend for a second. You'd have to really, really pretend. <laughs> <clears throat> that doesn't matter. Like I, uh, my biggest advice to anyone who is a writer who wants to become a showrunner is if you have the opportunity to run a show, take it because they don't, what happens is not, he ran that piece of shit. That's not what they say. They say, he ran that piece of shit. He's a showrunner now that you get the credit and then you continue to do that. You can suck at it, you know, but the show surviving or not surviving is not necessarily the biggest consideration. It's more that you did that job and hopefully you did it well, which I think that I did. The other thing that is for me, the thing that matters the most that continues to get you work is just always try to do good work. People in the broadcast business, even where they're trying to get the giant number all the time, they still want to work with people who do quality stuff. So if you end up with a good show that nobody watched, well, those people still know it was a good show. Maybe nobody else does, but the people in the rooms that you're meeting in, they still see that, you know, you did something good and they would rather work with someone who does something good than, than bad. That's true. That's true. <laughs> All right. Uh, tell me, uh, throughout your career, tell me that moment that would be the highlight chapter of your book, that holy shit moment that all the stories in your life are drowning in the ocean. You can only save one that no one would believe and it's not documented or something that happened that anyone would want to be a fly on the wall and see that particular thing or how it went down or what it was or what you remember. Um, you know, I, I would have to, this is not exactly a theatrical moment, but you know, I mean, first, first of all, getting Peabody was a, was a like out of body experience. That was very odd. And, you know, I can't be prouder of that. Um, especially since we got canceled like a month later, <laughs> it was, it was really something to see. Um, I think the moment that I always go back to that just makes me feel warm inside is that we worked on men of a certain age for a very, very long time. We developed it, Ray and I, and it was its own thing. Always. It was never, people would always say, well, what is it? Well, we don't, it just kind of comes out the way it is. Is it a comedy? Well, there's comedy in it. Could never really define it. So we were really, really nervous about how people were going to receive it. We didn't know what people were going to think. And it was like two years of Ray and I just living with it ourselves, filming it, refilming some stuff. And just thinking this could come out after all this time and somebody could just go, what the fuck is this? What is it? 
it's three guys, and we we'd always joke to each other like people would just go, "What well, the three guys are just walking around doing? Like, what are they? What is the point? What is the you know, reason we call the men of a certain age was just to give somebody a framework about it, because we were just afraid people would go, "What? It? I don't, I don't even understand what this is supposed to be." So, I'm driving into Paramount where we shot the show, and uh, I just remember Ray calling me, and it was the first review of the show had come out. It was Entertainment Weekly, and of course he's. Uh, got a gambling mind. So he's like, what do you think it is? He's trying to make me guess. What's the, what do you think the grade is? And I, I really, in my head, the way Ray plays it and he knows how to, he has a good poker face. This could be an F and he's fucking with me <laughs> or an A. And I just, I'm, I'm like sweating, just like not knowing what this is after all this time. What does somebody think about this? And I guessed, I just, I don't know, a B. And he goes, A minus. <laughs> Amen. And I had this feeling come over me like, holy shit, we did something good. Like people like it. Huh? And, and I just. Your and, Sally Field moment. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> after all that time. And then there were a lot of good reviews after that. And I hate to just, you know, live and die in reviews. But in that case, it was like we badly needed validation. <laughs> and it came through in that moment. Awesome. Well, we already got your proudest moment in that story <laughs> about the Peabody Award. So tell me what your greatest disappointment in show business has been so far. Oh, well, I mean, I have to say the cancellation of, <laughs> of Men of a Certain Age just because that while there were a lot of factors that led into it. And if I were a bitter man, I would say that we were getting the same ratings that Dallas is now. If I was bitter. Did you and Ray get if the phone call? You're not, yes. you're not bitter, of course. I'm not bitter because honestly speaking, Michael Wright. Tell me about that Steve phone Cohen, call with Michael. You know, it was, it was horrible. He called. He, so you're on a, so you're on a, so you're on a conference call with him. No, it was way worse. I was at home and they called me. And Ray was on the golf course on TV. He's on a televised golf thing while the show is being canceled. So I'm like, so Michael calls me and has the very hard conversation. Tell us about the conversation. Because he, he's, you know, Michael is one of the greatest executives there is in, yes. in the world. He started as an actor like Les Moonves did. They have a, he has a feeling about talent. He has a feeling about the way things are going to be. And he's just an amazing man. So talk about Absolutely. that call. He, um, and Steve and all the people around them were fighting. They wanted nothing more than that show to continue <clears throat> at that moment for reasons that, you know, are, are for reasons that I can blame them for. And also, you know, aren't their fault. The number wasn't there. Um, we've been through all this. They've been trying to keep our spirits up. They had extended the option for the actors another month to try and get more ratings to hopefully, you know, get something that was a little hopeful. All that had come, came and went. It was the last day that they had their options. The Academy, uh, sorry, the Emmy Awards had just been announced. Our only hope really was if we somehow got nominated for an Emmy. Andre Brower did. The show did not. Um, even though he had won a Peabody, he had to call me with all this like uh, knowledge. And he just said, I'm sorry, but we're not going forward, you know? And he, I, he said, I, I tried and tried and tried. And I know that he did, you know, and there's just, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm banging my head against the wall. And, you know, he has people above him. There's Steve, there's people above Steve. 
Um, Time Warner is a giant corporation. Um, and, uh, you know, he said at that time, you know, maybe if you want to do a movie, which wasn't of interest to us, it was a little later, but it didn't quite work out. Um, and, you know, um, I'm sorry. And uh, at that moment, we didn't, I didn't, of course, bring up trying to move it somewhere else, but uh, they actually, you know, we tried. It was too expensive at that point to move somewhere else. Going into a third season, people's salaries sometimes go up. I'm sure all that could have been re renegotiated. But the bottom line is, it wasn't uh, a big, a good fit anywhere, really. Um, and so he was very supportive. I mean, he was he was very nice. And I, this wasn't a case of uh, he was he was very upfront. You know, he was very communicative. That's all you want from somebody like that is he doesn't uh, he doesn't not call you and have you find out. You know, uh, so he was extremely, yes, communicative and, and, you know, nice about it. And, and sour, 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 what am I saying? Sour, sorrowful. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, they're extremely nice. After that, they made a, you know, they bought everybody. I mean, you get a Peabody, but there, you can pay for other people to have who were associated with the show to have an award or a certificate. They like made sure everybody on the crew and, you know, very writers and, you know, they're very generous that way. And, um, first class company. Yeah, totally great. All right. So last question. Um, it's a two part question. What advice do you have for the young comedian who's <laughs> struggling, watching a musical, trying to figure out <laughs> what the hell they're going to do in this business and how to become somebody who can be not only a great performer, but a great writer a great showrunner and a great executive from the humble beginnings of working late nights at a comedy club or somewhere out there in the world or for anybody in any profession starting to getting to where you've gotten in your career. You know, I think I, I can only speak for myself. So if there's anybody who's like me out there, I... I think that, like I said about being fearful, I'm not your go-to, oh my God, this guy's like a force of nature. He gets in the room and it's crazy. He can win over anybody. I'm not that guy. <laughs> I am an incremental, hardworking, hopefully have some talent. Um, but I have discovered even, you know, both with stand-up and with writing, that it's, it's much more for me about like a sculpture. It's like you start with a block of nothing. If you're writing a script, you can work for a day or two on it and you're only going to chip off. You're still going to have a blob and you can get very discouraged. Like it's not great yet. It's not anything. It's never going to be anything. Fuck me. Oh my God. Who am I? I'm going to go drink. That's, you know. I, my mentality can be to be in my head defeatist. And I think what I've hopefully overcome, you know, uh, and the thing that I always have to train myself to overcome is that every piece of it is a piece of the puzzle, you know, or a part of the sculpture. It takes so many moves, you know, for TV shows, there's so many meetings and casting and, and everything is one piece and, and the show can live or die sometimes on that particular piece. You have to approach every day, like I'm taking care of a piece of it today. It's not all of it. It's not, the whole thing does not depend on this, you know, 
like it, it, that you that it's it's you have to take care of every little piece is what I'm trying to say, and not every piece all at once. You know that's especially true with scripts because you spend so much time in the wilderness with a script trying to come up with even what the hell it is that you can it can make you discouraged so you don't ever attempt it and uh you just have to keep okay today i you know i managed to get three good lines in that character's mouth lines that you may take out two weeks later uh you know a month from now i figured out that the setting is this you know some days you're like i got eight hours and i wrote you know 10 pages every day is totally different and um it's all progress that's really i guess what i have to had to tell myself over and over and you know what i would tell to the young slightly depressed bald man out there <laughs> or woman <laughs> this has been really amazing and uh Today, Mike Royce, <laughs> you did win over our audience <laughs> and you were a force of nature. I appreciate that. And I'm very grateful. Can I you send came. this to the studios or? Yeah, you can do whatever. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you. It was great. Great to be here. All right. Uh, this is Barry Katz, another episode of Industry Standard. And as always, if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. Say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.